Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 161 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm talking with a talented and passionate illustrator and author about a tiny bird with an ambitious itinerary, the Rufus Hummingbird. We are going to talk about cottagecore nests, how wildlife moves all over our continent, birds that look like bugs and bugs that look like birds, and a lesson in confidence from the world's littlest dinosaurs. Just the Zoo of Us presents Rufus Hummingbirds with Alexander Vidal. Hello, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. I'm here with a brand new friend that I'm super excited to meet today. This is Alexander Vidal. How are you doing today, Alexander? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, me too. Alexander, real quick, can I get your pronouns? Sure. I use he, him pronouns. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited to be talking to you today because I have been kind of gushing over your book over the last few weeks. Thank you. It's called Wilds of the United States, the Animal Survival Field Guide. And it is just a gorgeous work of art. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Wilds of the United States was really a labor of love for me. Uh, I wanted to create a book that really celebrated the wide diversity of ecosystems and wild animals found all across the United States. I felt like I wasn't seeing a lot of uh, material that really showed just how incredible the range of you know wild spaces and wild creatures are that we are lucky to have here in the United States. So I wanted to do something that really celebrated that. And I feel like it just nailed The parts of it that really hit home for me were obviously the parts that I'm the most familiar with, like the Southeast wetlands. Oh, great. I'm from Northern Florida, where we're right in that sort of marshy, like coastal salt marsh wetland. And I was just looking through at these beautiful pictures of like the mangroves that I have beautiful memories of. And I was like, oh, the illustrations in the book feel so like they evoke the magic of those ecosystems. And you, you did the illustrations, right? I did. So I'm actually usually an illustrator. This was my first project working as a writer and illustrator. Uh, I also got to design the book, which was really fun. Uh, the team at Chronicle who published it, they they helped me with the design. But I really got to do everything on this book, which was a dream. I just got to really take control and have, you know, execute my vision with the help of, you know, an editor and an art director. But yeah. Gosh, for for being your first time doing that, <laughs> you could have fooled me. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, it was definitely a long process. Um, and I, I just wanted to say, I'm actually so glad to hear you like the section on the wetlands of the South, because, you know, you said that's an area that's very familiar to you. Mm-hmm. That's probably the area that was the least familiar to me. Oh. <laughs> I grew up in New Mexico, and I live now in California. So for me, I'm really familiar with the West. You know, I've taken lots of road trips all across the the Western United States. I know that very well. Uh, And so one of the great things about working on this book was I did get to get familiar with all of these other parts of the United States that I hadn't really been to. One of my favorite research trips for the book was getting to go to Florida and Georgia 
and see some of these places that I'd only read about. So I definitely tried to put that that excitement into the book. I'm glad that part resonated with you. It did. Did you get to go to the Everglades? I did. And that was, I mean, that was somewhere I'd wanted to go for years and it did not disappoint. I mean, I think it must be one of the most incredible parts of the United States. It's so unlike anywhere else in the world and just so incredible. It feels very mystical. Yeah, absolutely. It's so strange. I mean, <laughs> I, I got into the Everglades on my first day. I got in kind of late and I was driving in as the sun was setting and it was just this like bright pink sky over this, you know, like strange um, flooded grassland. And then I passed through these groves of trees and there'd suddenly be all these like spoonbills and wood storks and like strange tropical (laughs) birds. It just, it felt like I was in like the jungle book or something. It didn't feel (laughs) like I was in the United States. Like I felt totally transported, which is again, like exactly what I wanted to get in the book, just that you can go to these different parts of the U S and they feel so completely different from each other. You know, growing up in the West, I can't imagine somewhere more different than the Everglades. You know, I'm from this area, kind of born and raised. Mm. Uh, and just recently, we we took a trip over to the Monterey Bay on the West Coast. And yeah. just like you said, we were, you know, that was our experience right. being over there. We were like, whoa, every, like the color palette is different. Totally. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that was, that was such a fun part of working on the book was, I think, you know, as you flip through the color palette I was working with for each section would change so dramatically because you experience different colors, light looks different in different places. Um, I loved that about, you know, getting to all these different areas and just seeing, you know, how different it can feel and how different it can look. Yeah. And Monterey Bay Aquarium, I should say, is one of my favorite parts of the U.S. as well. I've, I've been very lucky to work with the Monterey Bay Aquarium for a number of years doing illustration. So I love to get up there as often as I can. I think it's such a magical, magical place. Yeah, we did plenty of free advertisement for them because okay. that was kind of the that was kind of the whole reason we went on our trip over there yeah. um, oh, was good. to go to the aquarium, and we did, and it was worth it. Absolutely, it's so incredible. I the last time I went, um, my boyfriend and I took a road trip up through Big Sur, and then I actually think somebody at the Monterey Bay Aquarium saw on my Instagram stories that I was in the area, so they said, you know, come come stop by and see. I had just. I had done some illustration for them that they were using on merchandise. And so they sent a message. Oh, that's said, so cool. Yeah. So they said, it's it's rolling out this weekend. You should come by. So we dropped by. And I think my boyfriend was expecting, I don't know, just, um, you know, like tanks of fish. He wasn't really sure what mm-hmm. to expect. And I think he was really blown away just how incredible of a space it is. Not just, you know, the exhibits are amazing. The animals they have are incredible. But also the space itself is just so beautiful. Yeah. It does have that sort of feeling of reverence exactly right? Yeah, like right when you walk so. in you feel like you're in like a temple <laughs> exactly it has, that, it has kind of a similar feeling to me when you go to a really good art museum and you just feel like mm-hmm. you're in this calm beautiful space of contemplation i think the aquarium gets that so perfectly so i i love to go up there oh yeah you mentioned that like prior to doing this book that you had really been primarily an illustrator yeah have animals and nature like always been your focus or where do animals tie into your work yeah, absolutely. I I started drawing when I was very young. So it's always been a part of my life. And it's always been drawing animals. I think my first memories of drawing pictures were, you know, drawing my dog when I was a child or drawing little stories about animals. So it's always been a big part of it for me. I later kind of moved away from illustration. I went to undergrad the first time at Occidental College and studied fine art, which wasn't really a fit. I liked the technical aspects of it, but I wasn't really interested in, in doing fine art. So I, I ended up pursuing anthropology, which was my other major, and ended up not being super into that. Uh, but 
I've lived abroad for a few years and I was in South Africa at Kruger National Park, which is another amazing space. And it was out there that I was looking around and seeing all these incredible um, birds and wild animals and thinking about in my head how I would illustrate them, like how I would change the shape language. And I realized at that point, like, this is what I should be doing professionally. Like, why am I not doing that? So it, it was definitely, you know, tied to animals that I decided to go back. I got another degree at Art Center College of Design in California, and I've been an illustrator ever since. So wildlife has definitely always been a big part of illustration for me. I think that when especially young people have like a passion for animals or wildlife or nature, a lot of times they're encouraged to pursue the like STEM side of that interest right. right, and very much encouraged to be like, oh, you should do the hard science. You know, you should get into right. like the to biology or chemistry or veterinarian, you know, a career or something like that. And I, yeah. I think that there is a lot of I guess, communication that needs to be done that like, that passion can also be translated into like really fulfilling creative careers too. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, I think a big part of it for me is I, I love getting to share my enthusiasm. I'm sure it's the same for you about, you know, wild animals and wild spaces with other people. I see that as, I mean, hopefully I'm giving something back. Hopefully I'm encouraging more people to, um, you know, love our wild animals and our wild spaces. So I definitely hope that it has some impact, even though I'm not, you know, working from a science background. Well, neither am I. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Sharing our love for animals and for nature and the world around us. That's what we're doing here today. Totally. We are talking about animals as two people who love them very much. And you're going to tell me about an animal that it has been a massive oversight on this podcast that we haven't talked about hummingbirds at yeah. all. <laughs> I can't I'm, believe I'm, it. I'm truly ashamed, but <laughs> I'm here to I'm here to correct that. Yes, a, a wrong is being righted. So we're talking about a hummingbird here today that you included a really beautiful and poetic foreword in your book about. This is the Rufus hummingbird, yeah. and I'm excited to know more about this bird. So uh, what what caught your eye about the Rufus hummingbird? Yeah, I mean. I'm I'm going to start off just by saying I think hummingbirds in general are so incredible. Um, I think it's so strange that, you know, one of the lineages of the dinosaurs was to evolve into these tiny little birds that could almost be indistinguishable from insects. You know, they can weigh less than an ounce. Uh, they feed off nectar and, you know, they can fly more like an insect almost than a bird. So I just think that on its own is so incredible. Yeah. Another thing that I really like about them is I feel like I grew up with a lot of hummingbirds. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is in the Southern Rockies. So we get a good number of hummingbirds migrating through. So hummingbirds are always part of my life. And I think they're almost, one of the things I appreciate about them is that there's sort of something we might take for granted. I think if we see them all the time, we might lose a little bit of the sense of just how incredible they are, but they're actually such insane little birds. So that's a big part of what drew me to them. But the Rufus hummingbird, I think, takes that to an extreme. It is a bird that weighs less than an ounce. But they make a migration that is almost 8,000 miles. They travel uh, all the way from Alaska down to wintering grounds in Mexico and then do the same thing in reverse. So I just think that's an incredible story. That it, I mean, for such a little guy to travel like across an entire continent. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for their body length, it must be one of the longest migrations of any animal. Oh my gosh, I would shudder to think what that body <laughs> right. life conversion must be. 
Hello, it's me editing the podcast later. I didn't actually need to do this math because Oregon State University did it for me in an article on their website titled, For Rufus Hummingbirds, Migration Looks Different Depending on Age and Sex, and that was by Steve Lundeberg from July 27th of 2020. They report that based on an average body length of three inches and a typical migration distance of 3,900 miles, the Rufus Hummingbird is traveling about 80 million body lengths. For just a little bit of perspective, that would be like me, a five foot seven person, walking around the entire equator of the planet Earth 3.3 times, and then turning around and doing it all over again a couple months later. My calves burn just thinking about it. And that's just based on averages. One Rufus Hummingbird was banded by Fred Dietrich in Tallahassee, Florida, before being recaptured and documented by Kate McLaughlin in Prince William Sound, Alaska. That is a whopping 3,530 miles away as the crow flies, or I guess in this case, as the hummingbird does. Anyway, back to the episode. You said you lived in New Mexico. Did the Rufus hummingbird migrate through where you lived? They do. So their main migration route, they nest from southern Alaska, which is the furthest north of any hummingbird. I mean, it's pretty incredible if you think of this bird that small surviving that far north where it can get so cold. I would not have even thought that hummingbirds could even live in Alaska. I did not think that was an option. <laughs> uh, some nest further south, like in Washington or you know parts of Canada. But they travel all the way down the Rockies in the fall. So they leave their summering site pretty early travel down the Rockies following wildflowers up in high alpine meadows. They cross the uh, Chihuahuan Desert into Mexico, and they winter down in the forests of central Mexico. They only stay there for a few months, and then they take a migration that takes them back up along the Pacific coast. So uh, I lived on one point in the migration route when I lived in New Mexico, and I live in another point now that I'm in Southern California, but I actually don't know if I've ever seen a Rufus hummingbird. Unfortunately, they look very similar to another hummingbird we have here called the Allen's hummingbird, um, which I see all the time. So it's possible I may have seen a Rufus hummingbird. I have no idea. And honestly, that kind of adds to the mystery of them. I mean, you get so granular, right? With like down to the species level, you're like, they get so incredibly difficult to tell apart. Right. I think we have, do we have ruby-throated hummingbirds? I think that's what we have here. Yeah, and so we have these, but then when we went over to California, we saw a bunch of Anna's hummingbirds. Right. And I only was able to tell them apart because I knew where we were. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, totally. Like, if you don't know where you are, they look pretty much uh, indistinguishable from each other, but they're cool little guys, though. Absolutely. Always a delight to see them. Yeah, I, I, I'm lucky. We, um, we have a decent garden here. We've got a lot of flowers that give off nectar. So we've got hummingbirds kind of constantly swirling around the house. And it just adds such a fun atmosphere. We get to see them sometimes chase each other off from flowers. They put on little courtship displays. Oh. Yeah, sometimes the Allen's hummingbird, they do this dive that kind of creates this whistle with their tail feathers. So every now and then you just hear this high-pitched whistle, and it's it's not coming from their mouths or a sound they're making. It's their, oh. their tail feathers as the wind moves through or as the air moves through. It creates this high-pitched whistle. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. They're such fun little birds. Yeah, when we were sitting in California listening, I remember mentioning, I was like, are those hummingbirds making sounds? Because I don't know that ours here make sounds. They're making right. this sort of like screeching sound. Like It sounded like a, like brake squealing. <laughs> yeah, it might be that. Yeah, it might have been the tail feathers. Yeah. They can create different notes with their tail feathers, I believe. 
Whoa. They're like playing their tail like a little musical instrument. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. Like like you said, it is like having little fairies flying around your house. Absolutely. Yeah. Since they don't fly like other birds, they have that sort of almost erratic flying movement where they're like hovering. Totally. Yeah. It does kind of feel like having a little a little nymphs flying around. <laughs> well, to add to their um, nymph quality, have you ever seen a photo or seen an actual hummingbird nest? A nest. The nest of a hummingbird is really incredible. They use lichen and moss to build their nest so that they're camouflaged. And they hold them together with spider webs, which I feel like that sounds like something. I feel like that's how a fairy would build a house, right? Use lichen and moss and hold it all together with spider webs. I did just Google some photos of hummingbird nests. And this is the most cottagecore thing. Exactly. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This does look like something you'd see on someone's like Pinterest mood board. Right, exactly. Some kind of a cottagecore wedding uh, inspired by this hummingbird. You could have the little hummingbird nests as the little centerpieces. There you go. This is going to be all over someone's Instagram. And the lichen gives it this sort of ruffly, frilly sort of look. Right. <laughs> I heard a funny story at the, um, there's this really great wildlife space in Tucson called, um, I think it's the Desert Museum. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. It's really great. It's a really beautiful space. And I, I love Tucson. And I think it's a really great place to go get a little glimpse into some of the Tucson wildlife. But they have this really incredible hummingbird house. So you can go in and walk around and be surrounded by all the hummingbirds that live in the area. And they were having a problem that uh, the technicians were doing too good of a job cleaning up the space. Oh. So they were cleaning out all the spider webs that would form. <gasps> so the hummingbirds couldn't build nests. So the scientists, uh, you know, like the the team there had to tell the technicians like, you know, you can keep cleaning, but maybe leave some nests, leave some of the uh, spider webs. And then once they did that, they could start building nests again. Oh, you need to set some leftovers for (laughs) the hummingbirds. That's so funny because that's something you may not think about you know like when you're just trying to maintain a space from a human perspective you're just like oh spiderwebs gross get those out of here but if you're a hummingbird you're like no i need that exactly i and i I mean that's another story i love just because i love all of these different you know interactions between animals and species you know it's always my favorite story to discover to find these different ways in which wildlife is connected in ways we may not expect which was another another driving force behind the book. I wanted to try to find as many of those stories as I could, you know, like um, badgers and coyotes hunting together or... Oh, I love that. I, I love that so much. <laughs> every, time I see the, every time I see those photos, I, there's different photos popping up now and then. I love to see them together. They always look like they're off on a mission. Yeah. Well, one thing that I felt like was really cool about the book was like, I was flipping through and I started seeing animals that I knew that lived here and I would see them on pages for other places. I'd be like, I didn't know they lived there. Oh, great. Like, I didn't, you know, you'd be like, oh, I didn't know you could find them here too. So it gives you sort of an appreciation for like the range of a lot of different animals. You're like, oh, wow. <laughs> what are you doing way over there? <laughs> yeah. And speaking of the Rufus Hummingbird, I mean, one of my favorite things in, about creating the book was getting to have the Rufus Hummingbird pop up throughout the book so you could sort of follow its migration. So I show the Rufus Hummingbird nesting in Alaska with the page number telling you, you know, you can go to this page to see where they go next. It's a choose your own adventure. (laughs) That was totally the inspiration. Exactly. I wanted the book to work in a few different ways. So somebody could, you know, sit down and just page through or they could, you know, go to a random page and just learn something new. But if they get into the very small like details of it, there are a couple of these little choose your own adventures where you can follow 
some of the migrations by going page to page to see where these animals go. Oh, I love an Easter egg. Yeah, that was totally my goal. <laughs> I, I This book, like I said, it was a big labor of love for a couple of years. So I, I buried as many of those things in there as I could. Um, and a big part of that for me was, I think that was a big part of the conservation message I wanted to communicate through the book, that wildlife, we tend to have a little bit of an idea in the United States that wildlife exists in places like national parks. So we think, you know, that's where the wild space is. But truthfully, there are a lot of animals that require space beyond these boundaries. So, you know, for a rufous hummingbird, their range is not within a protected wild space. It is everywhere. They need to have access to, you know, water and food as they make these migrations. So we can't just set aside some space and say, okay, the animals are safe there. We have to think about how we're living everywhere. We need to think, you know, our our waterways clean, even if they're just, you know, by the side of the road. We have to think about, you know, are we leaving some wild space in, you know, in between towns and cities? We have to think about all of this. So conservation isn't something that happens just in protected areas. We really have to think we're sharing all of our space with wild animals. You know, how can we be the best neighbors possible? Yeah. And and something you said in, I believe, the foreword of your book that was, it really sunk in for me, I think, was the reminder that our borders are arbitrary and unique to humans (laughs) and that wildlife does not recognize our borders, right? So you mentioned that the hummingbird goes all the way from Alaska down to Mexico. So it's, you know, traveling through not just multiple states, but multiple countries. So the decisions that might be made in one area are going to affect the hummingbird, which is then going to affect all of the regions that the hummingbird has to travel through. So we're not as isolated as we might think because of our uh, self-imposed borders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of my goals with the book too was I tried to think about my position when I was creating it. And I am, I'm I'm a Latino illustrator from New Mexico. And I, I tried to think of how I could bring a little bit of that identity into the book. And one of those was kind of just thinking about the idea of borders and what that means and how these borders aren't you know, they are arbitrary. And so I wanted to think about all these ways in which animals interact with our borders as much as possible, like the animals that need to cross it. Truthfully, part of this project developed um, after, you know, hearing about some of the border wall plans and just thinking about, you know, how much that would impact wildlife. So I really wanted to think about how wildlife engages with our space in a different way than we do and how we need to live our lives in a way that respects that. Right. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people forget about is that animals need access to the space too. Like it's not all about us. Right. I keep thinking of like the jaguar that keeps popping up in Arizona. Totally. As like an example of this because you don't necessarily think of jaguars as being a United States species, I guess. No, exactly. Yeah. Which is just so arbitrary. Like, yes, they do come here. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, they used to range, I think, at least as far north as the Grand Canyon. Although there are stories of them potentially getting as far as like Louisiana, maybe as far as the East Coast in the past, which seems pretty unreal. But up until the 1960s, they were still in sometimes in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. The 1960s, that's really recent. And so they do occasionally come across. I I have seen some proposals about the amount of space that jaguars could potentially return to. I would love to see that happen. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah. I love the ideas of returning wildlife. I mean, I'd love to see cougars back in more of the eastern United States. You're lucky to have them in Florida, at least. 
We have, yeah, we have Florida Panthers, and right. they're very rare. Like, we really don't see them very often, but they're here, and we love them. They're on our license plate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, yeah. I think that, I mean, I think until maybe the 1930s, they used to also at least range into the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia. So they used to be, maybe the 1920s, they used to be uh, a little more prevalent around there. So I'd love to see them returned. Uh, I'd also love to see them in the Appalachians. They used to be there. That'd be amazing. Hey friends, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Max Fun Network. When we get back, we're going to get into our ratings for the Rufus Hummingbird, so stay with us. Oh my gosh, hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture trivia podcast, Troubled Waters. On Troubled Waters, we play games like motivational speeches. It goes a little like this. Riley, give us an improvised motivational speech on why people should listen and subscribe to Troubled Waters. I look around this ad and I see a lot of potential to listen to comedians such as Jackie Johnson and Josh Gondelman and they need you to get out there and listen to them attempt to figure out sound rebus clues or determine if something is a Game of Thrones character or a city in Wales. I have chills. I'm going to give you 15 points. All that and so much more on Troubled Waters. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you choose to listen to podcasts. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We are the hosts of Fanti, the show where we have complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the things that we really, really love sometimes, but also have some problematic feelings about. Yes, we get into it all. You want to know our thoughts about Nicki Minaj and all her foolishness? We got you. You want to know our thoughts about gentrification and perhaps some positive? question mark Uh aspects of gentrification we get into that too every single thursday you can check us out at maximumfun.org listen you know you want it honey so come on and get it (laughs) period i mean as far as you know animals moving throughout the united states and making the space fluid to look back at the rufus hummingbird which is really just kind of making the entire west coast its home range and having a great time flitting up and down the west coast um if this is your first time listening to this podcast what we do our whole deal is that we rate animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness ingenuity and aesthetics all right first category is effectiveness which is how well the animal's body is adapted physically to do the things it's trying to do. So like tools it has in its belt that are built into its body, maybe defenses that it has that it can prevent itself from being eaten or mechanics it has in its body that let it get its food, stuff like that. What would you give the Rufus Hummingbird out of 10 for effectiveness? You know, this is a strange one because I, if you look at how it lives its life, it's a migratory species on one hand, it should have a very low score because migratory birds you would think should have, you know, big wings for soaring, like um, pelicans or sandhill cranes or terns. It does strike me as more of a sprinter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this does not seem like a marathon runner. Right. But I think it deserves a 10 for, for making that work despite that. I mean, I think that's incredible that it does not seem designed for migration, and yet it takes this insane migration that it doesn't seem like it should, but it does it every single year. So I'm going to say 10. It does seem to quite literally fly in the face of all of our sort of (laughs) like... It flits in the face. 
yes, it sprints around in the face of what we think a migratory bird should look like. And I'm really curious, like, what is it about them that lets them close such massive distances? Because when I think of hummingbirds, I think of, you know, short little bursts of energy covering short distances very quickly. How do they make it that far? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. I mean, it, but one of the interesting things is there are a number of other species of hummingbird that do migrate as well. So, I mean, the rufous hummingbird makes maybe the most spectacular of any migration of a hummingbird that I know of. But you mentioned um, you have the ruby-throated hummingbird on the East Coast. Uh, they make migration as well. So somehow these birds do it. I mean, I think part of it is they, they're making a trade-off. You know, they know they can't live in the northern climates where they nest all year round because their bodies would not survive winter. They're definitely not built for winter. So the trade-off they make is they just have to travel to survive, which I think is pretty incredible. And they, they survive mostly by feeding on wildflowers, following them as they bloom. I think occasionally they eat small insects for a little bit of protein. So they're just kind of following the food as it becomes available. Yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I think a lot of migration is kind of a mystery how birds and insects know how to do it. Some theories are, I think, that they tend to follow, you know, flowers as they bloom. So that helps guide them. Although Rufus hummingbirds also, I think, have incredible memories. So as they migrate, they remember where food sources were from past years, which is kind of amazing. Ooh. I've even heard some stories of them going to a place where they had, they knew there was a feeder in the past. And if it's not there, they'll still kind of go around looking for it. Oh, yeah. that makes me never want to take a hummingbird feeder down ever. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't that break your heart if one just oh, came up and one. was like, where's my food? Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I think they're also kind of jerks about their food sources. Oh my uh, gosh. Despite being tiny and very adorable. They're incredibly aggressive with other hummingbirds. They'll chase each other off. You know, they'll fight to defend their food sources. So they're not totally harmless. This is incredibly consistent with my grandfather has a big backyard and he's got probably five hummingbird feeders up back there. Wow. And his vision for this setup was to have just like a lush, you know, little community of, of a big happy family of many hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. But what he has instead is one very fat hummingbird. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he has one hummingbird that is really big and really, really mean. So this one hummingbird just flies around and it's like his sole mission in life is to chase away any hummingbird that comes anywhere near the backyard. So my grandfather's like, well, dang, I, you know, I, I thought putting up more feeders would right. let more hummingbirds come, but this one hummingbird <laughs> is chasing all the other birds away. That's amazing. <laughs> that is very consistent. They are very mean. <laughs> totally. And I remember that as a child when I first observed that we would have hummingbirds at feeders out in the backyard and I would see them chase each other off. And I remember realizing that disconnect between how I perceived the animal and I was picturing it as this cute tiny little bird and how they perceive them themselves they see you know <laughs> themselves as these like you know fierce little warriors and i think that did open up something in my mind of realizing you know i have a story about this wild animal and they have a very different story about themselves and that i think that did open something up for me it has that same energy as a tiny dog that thinks it's a big dog totally and like tries to yap at all the other big dogs that come by because it thinks it's much larger than it is <laughs> totally i mean i mentioned it earlier you know these are essentially you know tiny little flying dinosaurs and i think they still see themselves as that they see themselves as these you know 
fearsome beasts defending their territory. I think that we could all learn a little lesson in self-confidence. There we go. From the hummingbird. Yeah. We should all see ourselves the way hummingbirds see themselves. Right. Yeah, move, move through space like them. <laughs> when they look in the mirror, they see the last vestiges of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Exactly. That the yeah. earth. They're like, that's me. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Something that I've heard a lot about hummingbirds that I did want to ask you about. I've heard that they have this like incredibly fast metabolism that gives them a very, very narrow profit margin, I suppose, for their energy intake, Hmm. that like, they have to be constantly eating in order to fuel their like wings that are constantly beating and the heart that's constantly pumping, and that it's very risky for them to rest. Like, I feel like that's what I've always heard is that like, they can't even rest because they need to be constantly eating. Is that is that true? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that is true. There is, though, an interesting thing that some hummingbirds, I don't know if all hummingbirds can do it, the rufous hummingbirds certainly can, is that they can go into a state of torpor. Mm. So part of how they survive is that when they rest, they rest completely. So it's not like they're just, you know, like sitting down and taking a rest. Their body essentially slows down all of its processes. So it slows down their metabolism when they rest so that they're not um, expending unnecessary energy. Okay. Yeah, so they spend the day feeding, flying around like crazy, and then they can go and when it's time to rest, their body essentially shuts itself down. So it's not, you know, wasting all of those calories it gathered throughout the day. Right. Yeah, because they do have to kind of shut down completely. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's also how they, the ones that live in Alaska, even though they leave uh, for the winter, it can still get a little cold. And as they fly along the Rockies, it can get a bit cold. So I think this is also how they sometimes survive when things are a little bit colder as well. You know, it it takes a lot of body energy to stay warm. So instead, their body sort of um, shuts down for that period. Oh, that's very similar to hibernation, isn't it? Yeah, I guess in kind of like a tiny dose, because I think they'll only do it, (laughs) you know, they'll do it for like a night or so, as opposed to, you know, going into a period of hibernation. But yeah, I think it must be some of the same processes of microdosing hibernation. Yeah, microdosing. Yeah, gosh, these guys are, (laughs) these guys are such trendsetters. (laughs) Cottage core microdosing. It's amazing. (laughs) They have their finger on the pulse. They're very uh, active on social media. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that like the way that they fly is more similar to the way that insects fly, which is so fascinating to me about the hummingbird, because most birds have to kind of take off and then move forward. But the hummingbird has like a very different flight process from other birds. Yeah, they can fly in different directions, backward and forward. I mean, that's just so unreal. And their wings can be, I mean, I think some of them can be like a 200 beats per second which i can't even uh, like mentally fathom we can't even see that fast no absolutely i mean absolutely not (laughs) i mean i think even the more average is something like 50 to 90 beats per second and even that is also unreal so that's kind of incredible sometimes if you take a picture of them their wings are just not there the wings are like (laughs) invisible if your camera is not fast enough (laughs) but i mean speaking of them like insects i Years ago, when I was uh, younger, we went to Costa Rica, and I remember being at this one area where there were a ton of feeders out, and so there were a mix of hummingbirds and then these very large moths, and it was so incredible to see them all mixed together because you almost, like your eye at first couldn't tell what you were looking at, because the moths were so large and the hummingbirds were so small that they were almost indistinguishable at some point. I just think that's so 
these different forces of evolution bringing these two animals almost into a similar form. Yeah, especially when you look at like the uh, the hummingbird hawk moths. Yes, like, yes. They look like I have had multiple friends take pictures of them and then send them to me and be like, this is a really weird looking hummingbird. <laughs> yeah, there's something wrong with this hummingbird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're like, what's the deal with this hummingbird? And I'm like, that is a moth. Um, but right. they're so good at looking exactly like a hummingbird. Right. I wonder what the benefit is for the moth to look like a hummingbird. Yeah, and I also wonder which I wonder which happened first. Oh, true. Yeah. Like who's copying who? Right, exactly. Yeah. Who's the imposter? I saw something recently. It was like a a tweet about a, a professor an ornithologist who received a call from a guy in a bar. Uh, who urgently needed to know if hummingbirds had feet. And when the professor was like, yes, they have feet, there was like an eruption of applause from the bar in the background, (laughs) as though they had been having a heated debate as to whether hummingbirds (laughs) have feet or not, which seems like kind of a silly question. But if you've only ever seen hummingbirds like hovering, you might think that's all they can do. Totally, yeah. I mean, I... I think uh, I've been lucky to be surrounded by so many hummingbirds. And I used to have one in my previous, I lived in an apartment and there was this big flowering tree in front of my apartment window. And occasionally I would see one stop and just rest there. And they, they look so different in rest. I mean, I feel like we we're so used to seeing them hovering around that when you see them as just this tiny little ball of feathers with this long beak, uh, we don't usually see them like that. So right. this one used to come by and rest a couple times a day. So I always felt... I like that apartment for that reason alone, at least. Mm. I could see see this little guy. We almost do mentally categorize them as bugs instead of birds. Right, right. Because <laughs> when I see a picture of one at rest, I'm like, oh, dang, you have feathers and, and wings and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. I forgot. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, some of them have incredible feathers. I mean, just beautiful. Like, some of them can have those uh, incredible, beautiful, like, chest plate of, oh, of feathers. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah. My favorite thing in the world. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about aesthetics in just a few minutes. Oh, all right. But before we do, let's talk ingenuity for the yeah. Rufus hummingbird. I know you talked about, you know, that they are able to migrate, that they're able to remember where food sources are. These are all things that are going to factor into their ingenuity, which for us is just behavior, things that they do with their body to like solve problems that they face or get themselves out of predicaments <laughs> or uh, ways that they're able to actively sort of interact with the world around them. What do you give Rufus hummingbirds for ingenuity? You know, I'm going to give it another 10. I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm too easy of a judge, but I feel like spectacular. I mean, any animal that is going to summer in southern Alaska, which is, you know, a beautiful and a beautiful time of year to be up there, and then winter in Mexico, I mean, that's kind of the dream. I want that lifestyle. Like, you know, living in outside of Juneau and then traveling down to Mexico for the winter, that sounds incredible. That is a lifestyle that so many humans strive to emulate. Yeah. And we have to work so hard <laughs> to be able to afford that type of lifestyle. And the hummingbirds just do it. They do it. And they get to, you know, have a great trip on either end. They get to go down the Rockies in the autumn and then uh, up through California in the spring. I think they've got it all figured out. So it's And they don't have jobs. They don't have to buy plane tickets and go totally. to the airport. They just go. Yeah, they're on the move. I was wondering if anything stands out to you as like a moment when a hummingbird did something or maybe you heard of a hummingbird doing something, just like a hummingbird doing something that kind of caught you off guard or that you didn't expect it to do. Well, this is this is not something I, I personally have not seen this, but the story that I love about them is that 
sometimes they will actually pluck insects out of spider webs, <gasps> which I think is just so incredible. Um, that's, you know, a great way to get food that's already caught for them. So all they need to do is swoop in and get it before the spider does. Oh my gosh, that's diabolical. Yeah, they're smart little guys. They are really like, they have integrated themselves into the bug community. I think so. Yeah, they're like, they're killing it in the, the insect community. I mean, it is pretty strange if you think, if you actually think of a hummingbird and then picture like, a condor and think these are somewhat related that seems you know they seem much more like they should be related to a bee or something yeah is isn't there like a, a bee hummingbird there is that's the the smallest hummingbird they live in cuba they weigh less than two grams which seems oh. unreal i'm googling a picture it's the cutest thing i've ever seen yeah it's so cute it's like the size of your fingertip <laughs> right yeah they weigh less than a dime which is so unreal that a bird could get that small yeah, the the weight always throws me off with flighted birds because right. they're always less heavy than they look. Right. But gosh, I mean, just imagine holding a little dime on the tip of your finger and that's what it feels <laughs> like to hold one of these little guys. Yeah. Oh my word, they're so precious. So since we're talking about how cute and adorable they are, I did want to wrap things up for the Rufus Hummingbird by talking yeah. one of my favorite categories, aesthetics. This is just straightforward. How nice is this animal to look at? Just your gut feeling. What do you give the Rufus Hummingbird out of 10? You know, here's where I'm going to be a little bit tough. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Okay. Because I think they are beautiful. I think they're gorgeous. I mean, the color, the orange. But the fact that they are so similar looking to Alan's Hummingbird is a problem for me personally. Mm, because there it is. <laughs> I, I know they migrate through here. I know they're around. I would love to see one. But for me as a somewhat amateur birder, there is almost no chance I'm going to be able to see one zipping through the air and say, that's a Rufus Hummingbird because it's just always going to look like an Alan's Hummingbird. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dock some points on this one. That's one of the reasons birding is so difficult for me, I think, is because so many birds, especially birds that we have like around here, yeah. like our little sparrows and stuff, indistinguishable. Totally. There's no way I'm going to be able to look at one and know you exact. I don't know the field markers and stuff. No, not, not a skill of mine <laughs> either. I am, I'm not that kind of birder. I, I love to see birds. I love to watch birds. But, you know, if I have to like try to say which kind of sparrow this is, absolutely not. No. No, it's not happening. No. You you touched on something earlier that I for sure want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, that is, it does appear to be, uh, I, I looked up pictures. I'm looking at pictures of the Rufus Hummingbird right now. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite things in the entire world is iridescence. Oh. Like when any animal has like iridescence on it, yeah. that is like knocking it out of the park for me. And this little guy has a very interesting iridescence on its throat. Right, right. Yeah, it's beautiful. What's going on here with the little throat patch? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I actually don't know the if this is, you know, I know... Like a lot of birds use these feathers for um, courtship and the males, I think, are the ones that have the more pronounced uh, throat patch. So it might be mm. a way of kind of showing off to potential mates, just like the, the little whistling tune the Allen's hummingbird does. This might be part of how they attract the ladies. That makes sense. I mean, listen, it's beautiful. So like, I totally get what she sees in him, you know? Absolutely. Like I would, if I was a little lady hummingbird, <laughs> I would be all over that. It's funny because a lot of times I feel like when you see iridescence, especially in birds, mm. I feel like it tends to be more that like blue purple iridescence that you see on like 
a pigeon or sure. maybe like a mallard duck or something. But this little hummingbird's throat patch is like a gold and green iridescence. It's mm. like it shifts from like red to gold to green. It's very autumnal. <laughs> yeah, it's got a great palette going. It does. What a beautiful little fella. Oh my gosh. Iridescence alone for me is like, I love that. That's spectacular. Does the Allen's hummingbird have that too? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it compares quite as much. Yeah, let's look it up. I'm sorry if you can hear my, I have like the loudest keyboard known to man. Okay, yeah, it does have that like striking gold patch also. Makes it tricky. Hummingbirds are like little feathered jewels of the sky. Yes, absolutely. I'm obsessed with them. They're so cute. Oh my gosh, I can definitely see why the Rufus Hummingbird makes a good sort of little mascot for the diversity of the wilderness of the North American continent. Totally. And for me, I really wanted to celebrate. I mean, you know, I think when we picture the American wild animal, we tend to picture, you know, bison and grizzlies and wolves. And all of those animals are definitely in my book. But I also really wanted to create space to celebrate all of these other, you know, unexpected and maybe overlooked animals that I think are so incredible. So for me, the Rufus Hummingbird just really exemplified that because it's something that, you know, if you were to see it, you might not think much of it. But it, its life is so beyond our fathoming to think that it takes these incredible migrations. And so I really wanted to try to celebrate as many of those stories as I could in the book. And so that was a big, a big part of Wilds of the United States. They're, they're so fascinating if you give them the chance, like if you zoom in on them and give them the spotlight. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on them with us. Before we wrap up for today, I would like for you to let our friends listening know like where they can find you, where they can follow along with your work, where they can find your book, where can we direct people to? Sure. So uh, Wilds of the United States is uh, my most recent book. It's out now. Um, it should be available everywhere. If you you know have a favorite local bookstore, I always encourage people to order through their bookstores, but it is available you know everywhere. You can find me on Instagram at alexander.vidal. That's probably the best place to see what I'm up to, what I've been working on lately. I know that I follow you also on Twitter. Is that also a place you'd like to be followed to? That's true. Yeah. So I'm also, I am on Twitter at Ink and Tonic. Uh, so you can find me there. Yeah. And I'm always, I uh, have new books coming out every now and then. So Twitter and Instagram are both ways to find out about those projects and see what I'm up to. I will say, you know, we've had your book for a couple of weeks now. It's been sitting on my coffee table and I've got two little kids running around the house and it is the perfect thing to have out so that when the kids just want to like sit down and like take a rest or maybe they're sitting down to have a snack or something like that it is just the perfect thing to be like you know what let's open this and look at a few pages of the book oh i love that that's great like let's go through a few pages and see what kind of animals we can see on here it's definitely perfect for kids but it's perfect for grown-ups too so okay good yeah that was definitely what i was aiming for so i'm glad to hear that if, uh, if anyone in your life is a fan of animals, nature, or even just really likes good art, and <laughs> like oh. learning from art, this is absolutely a great pick. I'm, I'm very thankful for this book. It's a, oh, thank you so much. It's a real masterpiece, I think. Wow. Well, it's very sweet. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a yeah. delight. I love our hummingbird friend, and we will talk to you later. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today, friends. I hope that you enjoyed this 
incredible journey with the Rufus Hummingbird. I know I did. It was so much fun to learn about them and just appreciate our feisty little friends. If you like what you heard today, I'd love it if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher, like our friends Legati and Mecca Bluco, who both left very kind five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, friends. It, it really does mean a lot to us. We read them and they make us very happy and keep us motivated to keep making the show. So, um, it means a lot to us to hear from y'all. If you would like to hang out with us in the virtual spaces, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have an awesome Discord server that we really love and spend a lot of time hanging out in. Links to all that will be in the episode description. So just click on through to your platform of choice. You can also send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal that you'd like to hear about, or if you just want to talk about something on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network with the other amazing shows on the network, like the ones that you heard promos for here today. Go check them out, learn more about the network, and learn more about how you can support us and keep our show going over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. We really love it, and we hope that you do too. That's all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye! MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.